Trying to raise the serious capital needed to turn your idea into a global company? The process is daunting and complex to say the least. From identifying sophisticated institutional investors actually willing to back your pitch, to the initial seed capital phase, all the way through Series A, B, and C funding. Thankfully, Brian Hirsch is here to simplify your entrepreneurial endeavor. The co-founder and managing partner of Tribeca Venture Partners, a venture capital firm focused almost exclusively on startups, Brian is an expert at raising early stage funding for emerging businesses. I think the role of entrepreneurs is much more important than our role as investors. If you look at society in general, much of the innovation that happens in society comes from entrepreneurs. If you look at the economic growth of the United States, for example, almost all of the GDP growth of the last 30 to 40 years have come back from venture-backed companies. So if you think about all, most of the largest companies in the U.S. today, they're technology companies, and all those were venture-backed at one point in time. And so I think entrepreneurs really create the future. That's what gets me excited to be able to back those people and help them you know, fulfill their vision. And our role is really just to be a facilitator. In this conversation, Brian reveals practical tools gleaned from his years of experience helping to build world-class companies. Brian's insights are what any entrepreneur aiming to secure investments in the early stages of their business needs to know. Please enjoy our conversation with Brian Hirsch. You're listening to the Ivy Podcast by Ivy, the social university. We are the grad school for life, and our mission is to spark world-changing collaborations by introducing you to the most inspiring people, ideas, and experiences in the world. For more information about the Ivy community and to find out about events happening near you, visit ivy.com and email us at membership at ivy.com. This episode of the Ivy Podcast is brought to you by InstaSleep. Attaining quality sleep is key to a healthy lifestyle and vital in achieving success. Plenty of research has shown the indisputable benefits of getting a good night's rest, which is why you should try InstaSleep, a drug-free, quick-melt sleep aid that is gluten-free, kosher, and non-habit-forming. They taste great and help you fall asleep faster without morning grogginess an indispensable travel essential for busy professionals, frequent travelers, and jet setters alike, InstaSleep helps counter jet lag and sleep deprivation caused by time zone changes. Ivy podcast listeners get 18% off by using promo code SLEEPIVY at checkout on Amazon. Learn more on their website, www.upgradeyoursleep.com. Upgrade your sleep with InstaSleep Mint Melts and take on the day. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. So to kick it off, I'd love to hear your perspective on the role of entrepreneurs and investors in society. So at a very high level, to get us started on thinking down this path, what do you think, what are the key roles of these two sets of individuals? Yeah, I think the role of entrepreneurs is much more important than our role as investors. Um, if, you look at, if you look at society in general, much of the innovation that happens in society comes from entrepreneurs. If you look at the economic growth of the United States, for example, almost all of the GDP growth of the last 30 to 40 years have come back from venture-backed uh, companies. Um, so if you think about all, most of the largest companies in the U.S. today, they're technology companies, and all those were venture-backed at one point in time. And, and so I think entrepreneurs really 
create the future. Um, and so that's what gets me excited to be able to back those people um, and help them you know, fulfill their vision. And our role is really just to be a facilitator. So uh, the analogy I use a lot is, is Hollywood. Um, really, we're the producers, right? So we try to work in the background, ideally anonymously, um, and help, uh, you know, help the director kind of fulfill their vision for the film. It's the same thing, except I think the output is much more important to society, whether it's in life sciences, which we don't invest in, could be curing cancer, um, but just changing the face of the world that we live in usually for good and sometimes for bad. Um, if you think about things like Twitter, Twitter's used for positive, but it's also used for negative. Um, but clearly the world has become more connected through technology and, and that's uh, allowed people to get educated and to grow and, um, and advance sort of society very aggressively. And I don't, don't think we'd have that without entrepreneurs. Awesome. You've, you're an entrepreneur yourself as well as yeah. being an investor and you've seen hundreds of different founders uh, and investors who've been successful or made a lot of mistakes. Uh, in your view, what are the key traits of uh, an entrepreneur who is poised to succeed? And what are the key traits of an investor that's more likely to succeed than not? So that we can kind of see where the overlaps are, where they match. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're different. It's interesting, they're very different. But I think for entrepreneurs, the number one thing, and it's a, a cliche, is passion. Um, it can't be about making money, um, and we see a pretty tight correlation between um, entrepreneurs that, that see the world a certain way or think it should operate a certain way, and just they, they just feel compelled to go after that um, because the, the universe sort of conspires against the entrepreneur and startups. It wants to keep things the same, right? Um, people don't like change. It makes them uncomfortable, and entrepreneurs, by definition, are innovating and creating change, and in that situation, you have um, you have the in, the universe conspiring against you, and so ev everything is tougher to do. It's incredibly hard to build a company, as I'm sure you you can appreciate, and uh, and you have lots of roadblocks, and things are not always up and to the right and smooth. And so usually the entrepreneurs that succeed are the ones that can kind of run through any wall, um, and you have to be mission driven and passion driven to be able to do that. There are some. Uh, it, nothing's 100%. There are some that might say, I just want to make a lot of money and they might find a business. But if you look at the most successful, um, at least in our world, venture-backed companies, they tend to be people that were in it less for money uh, and more because they just were into the product or into changing the world. You know, Mark Zuckerberg's a great example. I don't think he really is that focused on money. Uh, he's trying to build you know, a, great, a great company uh, that can change the world. I think for investors, it's very different. For investors, at least in venture, it's uh, a lot of pattern recognition. We see a lot. Like I think in my brain is a computer, and it's like a black box, and sometimes I can't even speak to it. Uh, and I've been doing this for 20 years, and so I've seen on average four to 5,000 companies uh, per year. So that's a lot of companies, a lot of information. And so I try to crunch it as quickly as possible, and I just see the, those patterns. And I think most VCs will tell you, yeah, I, I can't necessarily speak to exactly what it is, but when all those factors come together, I, I know it. And so, uh, so the best investors tend to um, see those patterns, both in the entrepreneurs that they're, that they're looking at, because I think the entrepreneur is what you're backing, uh, even more so than the business. Um, and, then, and then also for what makes a, a successful business, the, the same sort of attributes uh, tend to be successful time and time again. In some ways, if you think about it, like all the money in the world is out there, right? People also bet on all kinds of crazy things. People bet on boxing matches and dog races and so forth. And despite that, you have incredibly passionate entrepreneurs who truly believe in something, yet raising money 
for most people is incredibly difficult. Why is that? What's the fundamental challenge with fundraising? <laughs> um, there's more. There's a lot more ideas than capital, right? I mean, that's really fundamentally what it is. I mean, use use us as an example. As I mentioned, we see four to five thousand companies per year, and we're investing in four to six companies. Uh, and if you look at that over an investment cycle, we'll have four or five years where we're doing that for each fund. So we might have a portfolio of twenty to twenty-five companies uh, across twenty to twenty-five thousand that we've looked at. And I don't think that's very dissimilar from every other venture fund in the country. And then if you take our portfolio of the 20 to 25 companies at the early stage, we expect a third are going to completely fail, a third will do okay, and a third will succeed. And so statistically, it's so hard to make these companies successful that, um, that that's really, you know, I think that's really why it's so difficult, at least in our, in our world in venture capital, to raise, to raise money because we know the math behind it. And a lot of times I think the entrepreneurs, everyone thinks they have a great idea and everyone thinks it's so unique, but typically any company that has come in, we've seen five or 10 or 15 or 20 companies, maybe not in a short period, but over a period of time, they're trying to do the exact same thing. So then it's about like, why are you so unique and special to be able to take advantage of this opportunity versus all the other people that are out in the market? Um, and I think that, that, that the, number, the world is a large place. There's so many companies doing so many things and there's just a limited supply of capital. So there is a lot of capital in aggregate, but when you compare it, uh, the, the supply of capital is still a lot less than demand for it um, by, you know, by hundredfold or thousandfold. So tonight we're gonna talk specifically about how to raise your series A and B, um, but to get us like a, to, to help us contextualize what that even means, can you just give us an idea of what the spectrum is, you know, going from angel investing all the way to IPOing or selling your company, What's that whole spectrum like? At what at what stage should an entrepreneur be thinking about each, and where specifically does the series A and B specifically fall? Sure, it's a, it's a very probably, that's a lo probably a long answer for, to that question. I'll try to give a, a shorter answer, but um, typically we'll see that company get started and they, they're raising angel. They, you have an idea, you're either self funding it, or you're raising you know, angel capital from friends and family. You know, you're a rich uncle, <laughs> the proverbial rich uncle that's going to fund the first few hundred thousand dollars. And that's just to get the idea up and incorporate, get the idea going, maybe come up with a plan, maybe start to get a prototype. Depending if you're a consumer or an enterprise company, you may be able to launch a product into market just with that. Uh, if not, you get far enough along where you'd raise a more traditional seed round of capital. And that might be from people that aren't investing just because they know you. Um, it's people that may not know you. Uh, and that think there's merit to that idea. And with that seed capital, really it's about a thesis, right? You have a thesis around a particular market uh, or an opportunity, and that seed capital should be to prove out that early thesis to get product market fit in a small number of people. So in the enterprise space, it could be a handful of customers. In consumer space, it could be a few thousand, up to a few million you know, people using your thing, whatever that might be. Um, and then once you have that data and you feel like you have some product market fit um, and can uh, start to build out a team and build out a company around that, that's typically when you want to go to someone like me and raise your Series A round of financing. So when we invest and most Series A funds invest, it's around some information or data that we can use. The companies still tend to be pretty young. Most of our companies have less than a million in revenue on the enterprise side, for example. Some might be more mature. But they, I can talk to customers. I can, I can, I can speak to people about the value proposition 
that the company is offering. Um, and then once you raise your Series A capital, it's about getting into that next stage. Okay, so now I've gotten a few people or, or a few million people on the consumer side to adopt, and now it's using that Series A capital to build out the team, build out some of the infrastructure to get to a point where you can raise your Series B. And, and Series B is an interesting place because uh, I like to call it no man's land a little bit because you haven't fully proven the business, but you're far enough along where there's data points where any investor can look at it. Um, and really, if you really what Series B should be about is uh, you know just adding you know sort of adding water, right? So the formula is sort of there. You've got the unit economics figured out. You know it's you know you know what you need to do. Um, and you can look at the past data and start drawing that line uh, to success. And so Series B investors typically are, are taking um, much more data and being able to say, okay, the line looks like it's going like this. Do I believe it's going to continue in the same path or accelerate? And you need to be able to have the data to do that for your business. And then once you get past Series B, it's really about taking, you know, you've now figured it out, Series C, it's about taking advantage of that market and trying to get a leadership position or making sure no one catches up with you. So growth stage capital um, is really to accelerate that growth. And you might, even though you have your unit economics solved, you may not be profitable yet, but you want to step on the gas and get market share. So I think of Series C and beyond really more about market share uh, and trying to you know, get to world domination in the market that you're in. Excellent. Awesome. So. I'm going to try to have you deconstruct kind of like somebody who's actually, let's say, they're ready for their Series A. Um, how do they actually step by step how they should think about it? So as an entrepreneur, I'll ask you from my perspective, uh, but obviously, you know, elaborate as, as you see fit. So first and foremost, so you decide, okay, my thesis is proven enough, I believe, for a Series A, and I want to go out there and raise institutional funding. And... Uh, and I, so the first thing that I'm thinking is, okay, you know, I got to reach out to people who might invest. Um, so what would you say are like best practices for that outreach process, both in terms of who you're reaching out to, what your message says, and what kind of deck you put together? Yeah. So I think first is thinking through how much capital do you need, right? So it's what's that plan? So what am I actually raising? So I've, I've gotten those data points. I feel like, okay, I've got product market fit. And typically, in a Series A, you want to think about capital in terms of sort of 18 to 24 months. So um, how much capital do I need to get to that next stage of the business? And at a minimum, the capital I raise should last me 18 to 24 months. Some people say 12 months. I actually think 24 months is more ideal because before you raise your next round of financing, that could be a six-month process. You have to think about starting that six months earlier. So if you think you'll run out of money in 24 months, you, you're going to start fundraising in 18 months. And will you have the proof points that you need, which we talked about, to get that Series B round of financing done? So that's how we look at it when we invest in Series A. Will the cash that we are putting in, will it actually get to those proof points so that we can successfully help that company raise a Series B round from a new investor? So I think that's part of it. So it's just how much capital do you need? And then it's, you know, putting your materials together. So taking all that data and everything you've learned and putting it in a good format, could be a PowerPoint deck or, or whatever. Some people don't use decks. You need to be able to clearly, in a, in a, in a very crystal clear way, uh, communicate what you've learned and what you still need to learn to an investor to be able to you know, entice them to invest. Um, and so getting those materials, it could be um, really starting with a presentation and then it's having that supporting data. So if you have, if it's a unit economic driven business like a SaaS business, you might have cohort data. You know, I signed 
X customers in January, here's what happened to those customers February, March, April. And ideally, the, the, you see improvement month to month, and you can show that to an investor so they can continue to draw the line. And the more you can kind of connect the dots and draw the lines for the investors, the more successful you'll be. You know, when there's a break in that line in the data, and they have to draw it themselves, that's when it gets more difficult to raise capital. And then, and then the other piece is figuring out who should I ask uh, uh, for money. Um, and that, I think, a lot of entrepreneurs don't spend enough time up front researching who's appropriate. So if you're a life sciences investor, you should not send me your deck. It's amazing how many uh, deals I get, both for Hollywood scripts and for, for drug discovery. So I'm not sure what the intersection is between those two, uh, but, but people just are looking for capital, so they'll just shoot me um, material around their company. What you want to do is figure out, okay, which, which firms, if you're looking at traditional venture funds, which funds have invested in similar uh, types of companies. So if someone's invested in SaaS businesses uh, in the past, you know, uh, then they might be a fit if you're a SaaS investor. You'd be surprised how many uh, entrepreneurs don't actually do that basic step. And then not only that, looking at the firms and creating that list of firms, who are the partners within that firm that make the most sense? So many firms are larger and they might have four, five, six, seven, 10, 15 partners. One might be doing consumer hardware, another one is doing software, another one's doing consumer services. And so you wanna make sure you're thinking about that right individual, not only the firm. Then once you've got that list of individuals, the last thing you should do is send them an email uh, or call them blind. Uh, because as I mentioned, we see thousands of companies coming at us. The, uh, we wanna filter the, the, the opportunities that come to us by you know, our trusted network. And so ideally, the best place to go is find an entrepreneur that they've backed before and that's been successful to vouch for you and say, hey, I know this person, they're doing something in a similar space and they're amazing and you gotta meet them. That's the first meeting I wanna take. Uh, and then you work down from there. So uh, uh, founders or entrepreneurs in a market, that in the same market, then next would be founders or entrepreneurs that we know not in that market, but just generally. And then after that, it might be other investors, it might be a service provider, and anyone that we would view as a trusted source. And a lot of people say, I don't have relationships. I don't know how to go about it. It's an open world. Any venture fund, people are on LinkedIn. You can see their connections. You can do a little bit of groundwork, and it will save you a lot of time. Um, and way too many entrepreneurs just spray and pray with their deck. And, and I've actually never met uh, a company that's raised capital successfully at the Series A um, in that way. I'm not sure if I covered all the questions. but That was awesome. Very cool. All right, so let's say that someone got that introduction to you, maybe through somebody uh, that you already backed. You're intrigued, they come in for a meeting. Um, so in that meeting, in that setting, so obviously you go through the materials and every company is different, but generally what would you say are best practices? Um, because obviously the entrepreneur is working on this business 24 seven, probably for many, many years, um, and it's gonna be an hour long meeting, so there's limits to how much you can go over. What are the most important things that you're really looking for when you're meeting someone face-to-face? -face? Yes. You've already seen their data, so what's, what's the purpose of the meeting? And yeah, so for the, for, the, for the first meeting, first face-to-face -face meeting, it's really I'm judging the entrepreneur and, the, and their team, whoever happens to be there. You know, I'm saying, okay, I wanna know more about you and why, what brought you to this place uh, at this point in time and, and, you, and why you? Like, why, why are you unique to be able to take advantage of this opportunity, you and your team? What unfair advantage do you have? What view of the world do you have that nobody else holds? You know, how are you approaching a market? You know, why are you different? Why are you unique? Is, is really the number one thing I'm thinking about. 
Uh, and then I'm looking at the team because we really are, most venture investors at our stage are still team first. Um, I'm saying, is this, is this a team that I want to work with? And so it's actually not the entrepreneur just selling. It should be a two-way uh, two feel. There has to be a fit. It's sort of like a relationship, right? You might go out on a date with someone and on paper they look fantastic. Like, oh, they're beautiful. They speak so well, all this stuff. But it may not be a match, right? So you need to have the right match and the right chemistry between the investor and the entrepreneur, because you're going to be with this person if they invest for many, many years. One of the one of the, the statistics I like to quote a, a lot is that the average venture relationship lasts longer than the average marriage in the U.S. And so, think about the process that you're going to go through to think about a partner for marriage. You should think about it the same way for for an investor. So, so I think that piece it should be a two-way discovery process, ideally in the first meeting. Having said that, most of it will be the entrepreneur pitching the investor. And I think it's just walking through the business in a, in a more structured format, at least for that first meeting. You have to get the, you have to make sure your passion shows through and you get the investor excited about what you're doing, just emotionally. I think sales is emotional. People buy for emotional reasons. And so I think investors, even though you know, we're processing the information, they, we're looking for that connection. We're looking for, to see that passion across the table. And you know, authentic passion as to this person is going to go out and just run through every wall. Um, if we don't see that, it's kind of hard for us to, to, at least for us, to get excited. And then it's you know, presenting the information, and and we're looking at how you run the process with us as a proxy for how you run your business, um, how you raise money from other people, or in the future. So if you aren't effective communicating why we should give you capital at the Series A you're less likely to be effective at the Series B and the Series C, or when you're selling the company, or when you're recruiting that CTO that you absolutely need. So uh, we need to see that. Also, I think intellectual honesty. Too many entrepreneurs come in, and they're thinking, I just got to cover every wart and every issue with my business. Uh, this, the secret is that there is no perfect business. Take Google or Apple. They're not perfect businesses. There's, if, you go, if you go on Google right now and and you know, type in Apple, you know, Apple business model, you'll find many, many articles about all the issues that they're having and the, the, their weaknesses and how their business might, might, might um, fail or, or, or cease to grow in the future. And so we look for an intellectually honest team that will say, hey, here's what I've figured out and here's what I haven't figured out and here's what I'm trying to do to figure out the four things that I need to figure out for this to be a really big business. Um, and so it's, it's an open sort of collaborative conversation and I think if I was to give one piece of advice, it's that. Instead of trying to you know, show your best face and, and try to impress the investor, you know, have an open and honest conversation about what you're doing. And, and that tends to, in my experience, you know, lead to the most amount of success. Okay. Awesome. So one of the factors that I think is surprising for entrepreneurs who you know, started something that they're passionate about, they weren't necessarily thinking venture money and so forth. They're just doing their thing. Um, what makes uh, venture capital pretty unique is that unlike other investors, whether it's angels or any other investor, like VCs are really looking for huge opportunities, yes. right? And that is actually not necessarily something that you you'd think about as the entrepreneur initially, because you know the VCs are have that math calculation that you talked about. Out of thousands, you only pick a handful. Right. Out of the handful, you expect the third to fail. Right. So can you talk a little bit about, you know, as important as it is to be intellectually honest and really walk through everything, you also need to, because a lot of entrepreneurs also, they like to be conservative, like, you know, under promise, over deliver. 
But with VCs, I think they've got to see this like big, what's the, what can this look like? Mm -hmm. So can you talk a bit about market size and the importance of that when it's a VC investment? Yeah, for market, market size is critical. Uh, for us, it's one of the number one things we look at. It's, so if you're going to go, I think if I take a step back, almost every business should not raise venture capital by definition. Like 0.1% of businesses should actually be talking to someone like me because there's a very small percentage of businesses doesn't mean they're not good businesses, but there's a very small percentage of businesses that can grow at the scale that you're talking about. And that's what's necessary for our early stage venture model to work is we need to have very large outcomes. You know, the lens at which we look at a company is, when I, if I invest in this company, can this one company return my entire fund or a multiple of my fund? That's a very high bar. Um, and often things don't work out, as we discussed, but that has to be the starting point uh, in my frame uh, of reference. And so when the entrepreneur is talking to me in my office about the business, that's always in the back of my head. You know, what are, what's the friction that will prevent this company, could prevent this company from reaching, you know, that kind of growth? And it could be the team, it could be the market's not large enough, right? it could be, you know, the sales and distribution is gonna be too complicated. There's many things that can prevent that kind of growth. And, and actually, in 99.9% .9 of the cases, there are, there's too many things that will prevent that type of that growth from happening. And so most entrepreneurs should actually not raise, I'm selling against my book, but should not raise venture capital. I have many, many friends who have built unbelievably successful businesses that they own 100% of, or them and their partners own 100% of, that are growing nicely, very profitable. And in many cases, when they exit those businesses, they make more than the venture-backed companies because they own the entire business. The biggest problem is when people think, oh, I should just raise venture capital because that's what my friend did. Um, that's a big mistake. You probably shouldn't raise venture capital. So before you even walk into the office or thinking about raising venture capital, again, it's about intellectual honesty. Can this business get to that kind of scale, number one? And number two, know that the bargain that you're making, right? So if you're taking money from someone like me, um, you, you're essentially signing up to that ride. Um, and things could happen and you might sell for, for less, but there has to be alignment. And so we actually are screening for that oftentimes at the early stage. You know, will this entrepreneur really take it all the way? You know, or are they willing to, or is that, is that their, their, their goal? Um, and so I think you have to, as an entrepreneur, really think, think about that and decide if that's right for you. And I would say for, except in very rare cases, it's not, um, and that's okay. So can you just give it like a specific example of like what's a growth rate? I know it's yeah. totally depends, but like, you know, before you were talking about, yeah, maybe you have a couple of customers if you're enterprise and millions maybe if you're a consumer, but if you give it like almost as like a percentage perspective, like how fast should a company be growing for them to think, well, maybe this is like venture backables, 50%, 100%, 200%. The language we use internally is linear and nonlinear. Okay. So linear is, you know, uh, half a million in sales, then a million, two, three and a half, five and a half, eight, 14, you know, 22. Those are, that's great growth, right? That's a, that's a growth company. This is not fast enough, right? So uh, a venture-backed company would be one, four, 12, 30, 100, right? 300, you're, you're, you're seeing growth rates in the, in the hundreds of percent. Um, 
for at the early stage, for an early stage investor. Now, once your business gets more mature, if you had the, maybe that slower growth rate, there might be a point where if something gets unlocked and you can see great growth, and then you might want to raise venture capital or outside capital. Um, but really, it's about sort of hyper growth and exponential growth. Our most successful companies have gone from zero to you know, 150, 200 million in sales in five or six years. Um, you know, some companies could do, can do that in seven, eight, nine years. But once you start getting past 10 years to get to a $100 million company, it starts to become, you know, I wouldn't say not venture-backable, but it's not going to generate the types of returns that we're looking to see. And it's very hard to get businesses to grow at those rates. Um, so yeah, I, I think uh, it's a good question because it gives a, a framework. You really have to be going after you know, significant, significant growth. And those are the companies that get the most premium multiples and exit as well. Um, so you'd say more than doubling your revenues at least, yeah. until what revenue level would you say? Like uh, when, do you, when are you okay for a company just to be doubling their revenue? As long as you can. I mean, there, I mean look, there's venture-backed public companies today that are still growing and they have hundreds of millions of revenue and they're still growing it like 50 to 100% right. a year as public companies with thousands of employees. Like the, the ones that really work are like that. Um, they, you know, it goes on for 10, 15, 20 years. And Google is still growing, I think, 30, 40, 50% 20 years later um, per year, uh, depending on the year. And so I think, I think it's, a, it's a really long time. Um, and the, the, way I, the way I like to think about it, there's like the rule of 40. Um, I think it was Brad Fell, the founder group that created that, I heard. Um, and the rule of 40 is that if you're going to be a public company, you have to either be a combination of your growth rate and your profitability, it has to be 40, right? So if you're, if you're, if you're, if you're negative 20 in EBITDA, you better be growing 60%. If you're growing 40%, you have to be break even. So there's this rule of 40, which I think it's a, it's a nice way to think about it when you get to the IPO stage. But the rule of 40 might as well be the, like the rule of 400 <laughs> at the very earliest stages. Um, you better be growing you know, at the earliest stages you know, at, at, the, at those type of rates. Another thing that's, you know, what a lot of entrepreneurs who haven't gone through this process yet would think is like super critical is valuation because obviously it determines how much of the company you get to keep, uh, how much more you can raise and, you know, how, what your dilution is going to be. Um, but as with anything, price is kind of can be very elusive to determine what's right. You know, it's what someone is willing to pay for. And uh, you made some analogies to dating and so forth and marriage <laughs> earlier. So can you tell us a bit about like valuation? You know, obviously it really depends on how many people want the deal and all the metrics of the company. But what is like a, a good rule of thumb in terms of how you think about it uh, as far as, you know, when you when you propose it? Are you the one usually proposing a term sheet or are the entrepreneurs kind of coming and saying this is what we're looking for? Yeah, we're typically proposing the terms and setting valuation because that's kind of what we do. Um, there's been this trend over the last few years about, you know, don't price the round, safe notes and convertible notes. As, as venture investors, we're, we'll do a convertible note on occasion, but really we feel like our, part of our job is to put a value on a company at a particular time and, and think about that. There's no like hard and fast rule of thumb. I'd say, yeah, you know, I'd say most early stage venture investors are thinking about ownership more so than valuation. Um, and I think entrepreneurs should think more about ownership than valuation. So when we present a, a term sheet to a company, we always include a very detailed, fully diluted post-financing cap table. So the entrepreneur knows I own this before and I own that after. I can give you five valuations 
and structure different ways that'll show that same ownership before and after. And so I think it's very important um, not to get um, intoxicated with the headline number and really look at what do I own? Because <laughs> at the end of the day, that's really what matters. And so I think as venture investors, we think about it the same way. Um, and there are, I don't say there's rules of thumbs, but if you look at, if you look at series A rounds, for example, most of the companies that we've backed tend to have pre-money valuations um, in somewhere between the mid to high single digits to mid to high double digits. So let's call it six to 15 or 20, depending on where they are. Um, and depending on what market they're going after, how mature they are, again, how competitive the, the deal is. But all of that is kind of in the framework of what size check we write and can we get uh, an ownership early on that sort of makes it worth it for us to put all the time and energy that we do into each one of our companies, particularly a firm like us where we're only making a handful of investments per year. We put a tremendous amount of time and energy into each company. And so if I own 1% of that company, it's really not worth the time. And so uh, investors like us think in terms of 10, 15, 20% ownership in the company to at the early stage to make it really worthwhile. Um, and so I think, I think I think entrepreneurs should not focus so much on valuation because if they run a good process, that's the output. Right? A healthy process is the market will speak and you'll know where you are in valuation. Um, and so if you have a healthy process and you're talking to a number of investors, you know, as you said, the valuation is what one person is willing to you know, invest in the company and what one person is willing to take that capital at. And so I think, I think you just have to go through a discovery process. And as our companies raise money in later stage rounds, when you, you have more data and you think that that range is tighter, it's actually not that tight. We've had companies that have you know, 100 to 200% differences in valuations at the later stage between different investors. And actually, it's not always the smartest thing to take the highest valuation. In many, in many cases, it's the, it's the absolute worst thing you could do. Okay. That's a whole separate set of questions. Right. Uh, so on this one, though, so would you say that 10 to 20% uh, ownership yeah, that you transfer to an investor, would you say that kind yeah, of transfers are... If you think about seed and Series A, usually it's 10 to 20%. I've seen as low as 5 and I've seen upwards of 35 depending on the business. Um, but that's a, a, probably a good rule of thumb, and then it gets lower as you, as you, as you go up the stack and in terms of later rounds. Um, but different people are able to raise money at different valuations. So if, for example, if Elon Musk tomorrow decided, hey, you know what, you know, this, this Tesla and SpaceX thing is great, but I'm going to go, you know, I'm going to go deliver food because uh, I think I have a new way to deliver food, you know, through, um, you know. <laughs> yeah, through the Hyperloop, I'm going to deliver. I'm going to do hyper, you know, hyper foods. We're going to do Hyperloop foods. If he's watch, if he watches this, and uh, you know, I, I get 10 percent just for <laughs> just for coming up with that. But you know, hyper foods, and and he wants to go out and raise money. He kind of can set his own valuation because he's Elon Musk, right? But if uh, you know, if John Smith, who's never started the company before, has that same idea, you know, they might they'll probably struggle to raise money. I think Elon. Any idea you had, he'd be able to raise money for because of his track record. So part of it is what you're doing, but part of it is who you are and the risk associated with that entrepreneur. And that goes back to if I back Elon Musk at a Series A kind of whatever valuation, pretty good chance that Elon Musk can raise a Series B at a higher valuation if he has some sort of execution, and then a higher valuation in Series C. So it's, there's a, it's we look at it from from that perspective, like what's the risk backing this entrepreneur be, to be able to get to that next stage and, and also you know, um, check off the boxes on the, on the proof points and to be um, proved to be successful. And uh, so a lot of times um, 
given that you know you're thinking about ownership, the entrepreneur, and you, you mentioned a, a few questions ago about you should try to raise at least 24 months yeah. of capital because it may take you six months to raise. Um, and given the calculus that the investor is also making on like, okay, well, if I want to own 10 to 20% of this company, a lot of times then the amount raised kind of in a way determines valuation. Sometimes. So yeah. how would you advise someone to think about that from an entrepreneur's perspective? They're, let's say they're going to give up 20% of their company anyway, let's say in this round, just you know, for simplicity's sake. Then raising you know, 2 million versus 10 can make a huge difference to they're giving up the same amount potentially of the company. Um, is it better than to just raise more, assuming you can, you're giving up a certain amount? There's not a great answer to that question because it really depends on the business. Right. Um, like, there should be some law. Whatever gets raised will be, will, be, will be burned or spent at the early stages. And so the most successful companies in history are the most capital efficient companies. Google did not raise a lot of capital before they went public. So you kind of, I think, I think many companies can do the same with 5 million if they can do it with 10 million. And that sounds crazy. But what happens with 5 million to 10 million and now you've raised more just because you wanted to get that higher valuation, it leads to sort of lazier decision making. And so many times now you own, now as a founder you own 70% of the business instead of 60%, but that 70% is worth less because the decision making is not as precise. So if you're a highly disciplined human being and you know that you're not going to you know, get three more foosball tables or a hundred different types of snacks and say, oh, well, we got this extra money, let's go do these four other things and, get, and lose your focus. Um, if you can pretend like you rate, let's say, let's say you can raise 10 at the same dilution as five because investors thinking about ownership. If you're the type of person that can take the other five, pretend you didn't raise it and keep it in the bank for a rainy day and not let it distract you, then yeah, take the extra capital. But my view on that is that nine times out of 10, human nature being what it is, is that people tend to spend more, right? Think about it personally, right? If someone is worth millions of dollars or hundreds of millions of dollars and they're going and they're buying you know, they're buying dinner, they're not looking as closely at the prices on the menu, and they might even be getting ripped off sometimes. They're like, yeah, not a big deal. I think humans think about, uh, think about the same way in business. If you have more cash, you're more likely to be loose with that capital. You're not gonna negotiate your real estate lease quite as hard. You're not going to, you know, you're gonna buy more expensive furniture, things that no, don't necessarily have a, have a really hard ROI. Um, and so only take more capital. You can, you have a surefire way to utilize that capital to generate that extra, that extra dollar has to generate you know, five to 10 on the back end. Now that's a great answer. Um, I'm just gonna dig a bit deeper though, sure. just because cause there is a paradoxical, uh, and I, you know, I want this to be just as valuable to yeah. people as possible. Sure. There is something there that like, you also, by definition, you know, at each stage you're proving hypothesis, you're getting more data. Yeah. There's a lot that you know you don't know, and then there's a whole bunch of things that you, know, you never thought about because you haven't been that that scale before. You know, it's very different. Like once you start saturating a market, what the challenges are versus when it's early on. So, with that in mind, I mean, just for a lot of entrepreneurs, like given that, um, also you know you're going to get rewarded for high growth rates. Yeah. So you're actually incentivized to actually burn. You know, Depending a little on the market more. Environment. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it's just it's one of those things. Where it's not an easy question to answer, I guess, or or to even ask, but. You know, that's why, like, if you had to give an advice on, like, erring on 
Like, should you just earn, like, raising, like, as little as possible, or should you just try to actually get enough of a padding? So I, I, our advice is usually somewhere in the middle. Okay. So it, there's, an, there's an amount that you need to raise. So let's say 5 million gets us the 24 months. Okay. But for the same valuation, I can get, yeah, and, and usually we just assume if, if the entrepreneur says 5 million, they really need, like, 7 to 8. Because just my experience is that the plan is always, it, very rarely do you need, do you say, oh, we, we, we did it with three, right? Usually it's, I, I didn't realize these two or three three things were, were necessary. You know, the product took an extra six months, and because that took an extra six months, you know, our revenues got pushed out six months. Or you know, we, when we raised that Series A capital, we assumed we were gonna hire our sales team in January, but you know what? It took us four extra months to find this killer VP of sales. Everything gets pushed back four months. So, so all things being equal, raise a little, we always tell our companies, you know, raise a little bit more. But, but I wouldn't go overboard, right? I'm not talking about double, right? But if you're looking to raise five, an extra couple million dollars is okay. Ten, that's a whole different that's a whole different expectation from the investors. So now you've raised to the higher valuation with more capital. The investor that you're married to, right, has great expectations. They think that you're gonna put the toilet seat down every day and that you're gonna make the bed and you're gonna do all these great things and then they realize, wait a second, you know, they're they're not doing it. Um, they're not producing the, the results I expected, especially with the higher expectations of more capital. That's deadly. And that's when founders a lot of times end up not inside their companies, or they can't raise money at a higher valuation, or people that were uh, their employees that were issued options uh, at a particular price. Now the next round, those options are worth less, and so you've lost the sort of the the, the vibe of the company and the sort of this this uh, high growth story is maybe not as high growth, and people don't want to work there. It's harder to recruit. It's harder to retain. So a lot of there's a lot of negative things to more capital and. Uh, and those higher expectations. And you really should only take a lot more capital if you really know how to deploy it uh, in the right way. But a little more, yeah, on the edges, 20, 30% more. Usually that's not, not a problem. Yeah, perfect. Um, quick, uh, just addendum to this one. So you mentioned uh, a few questions ago, try to have, you know, it may take you six months to raise. When you're looking at the run, like the kind of, um, how much runway a company has. What do you think is like reasonable amount of runway that a company still has when they're raising money versus like you look at it and you think, oh my goodness, this is like pretty close. So for example, from a VC's perspective, like is it six months of runway still? You think, okay, like they have six months or do you actually think, think well, these guys are really close to the edge already? It depends on how well the company's doing at the right. time you're going out to raise. Right. So the companies that are doing fantastic, they won't necessarily take six months, but I still want them to have six months. Right. You never know, right? right? So the company could be doing great, but you know, uh, Trump can send a nuclear warhead you know, to North Korea and you will not raise money, right? No matter how great your company is, everyone will freeze for two, three months and then that could delay. You never know what's gonna happen from a macro perspective. And so I think even the best companies are, with perfect execution should try to have six months. And in some cases, you know, we don't have all fantastic companies are all doing perfectly. Some of them have more challenging stories to tell to raise um, uh, future rounds of financing. And so it's like some people in dating, they have personal challenges that may make it hard to find a mate. And so it might take a little bit longer. And so you need to, again, it all comes back to you know, removing ego and being intellectually honest about your business, not thinking like all the great things that you're doing, thinking about like, okay, here, what are our, what are our weaknesses and why might this take longer uh, for whatever reason? And make sure you've mapped your capital to that time. So we've had companies that we thought were gonna have more challenging time, we said go out a year early. We've had some companies that didn't wanna raise for a year, but we were worried about economic conditions and said, you know, go out now um, because we think it'll be easier. 
you know, get the round done. And then some of it is around timing about what's going on. So if you're in the middle of a major product launch, probably not a great time to go out and raise capital. Um, and again, you had planned your burn rate a certain way, but now your product was delayed six months, and so the time that you were going to go out to market was the time is the time that you know you're launching this product, and the data is going to be a little bit delayed. So I think I think you have to be somewhat flexible. And generally, the stronger your balance sheet is when you're talking to investors, the better the chances of having a successful result. And the best is when you don't need capital, right? So the the, the, the entrepreneurs have done the best in in both pitching us. Uh, and also our entrepreneurs, when they're pitching other investors, is like, oh, we don't really need to raise, um, and we may not raise, not sure if we're gonna raise, but you know, for the right investor, you know, we could do these three or four things, we might, you know, we might bring in something, you know, or we're thinking about raising next year, but we're talking to a few people just to get to know them. You know, that, to me, is a better strategy, because now you know, people, can, people can invest uh, with information and seeing how the business performs over time. Uh, and if an investor gets really excited about that story, they might try to preempt around and say, oh, don't wait till next year. Here's 10 million right now at a great valuation. I want to take you off the market. Um, and that's the ideal scenario. So generally, the stronger your balance sheet, the, the, better, you, the better off you are. Um, and so six months is an absolute minimum. I think perfect is 12 months. Awesome. Uh, how much do you care about um, profitability in relation to growth? Obviously, it depends, right? Like yeah. on your growth rate, but you know, a lot of entrepreneurs, like if they're making that trade-off between, I can actually make this profitable in the short run, um, and then you know, run it at maybe break-even to keep going with growth, or I can burn faster and show even higher growth rates. Obviously, it depends on the company and the situation, but in general, you know, is profitability something that actually does impress you when you see it, or is it just kind of actually not that relevant? I think profitability is always impressive. It's not something we look for, but I think it's 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 a big milestone uh, to be celebrated. If you can get your business profitable, that's a really good thing, right? At the end of the day, um, you know, businesses are worth nothing if they can't earn a profit at some point, right? The 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 value of business is is uh, the value of the future cash flows or the expected future cash flows uh, of a business. And so to hit that profitability is great. It's not something we, we care about when we invest, but we care more about the ability to be profitable. Um, we look at the unit economics and we need to be able to view the model and say, you know what, we know that if we want to be profitable, we could do it in a quarter or two quarters by lowering our growth rate, right? So instead of we, we're choosing to burn capital to grow 200%. If we decide to grow 40% or 30%, we know we could be profitable pretty quickly. We don't need twice, we could, we need half the salespeople. We don't have to put out products quickly, whatever it may be. Customer support is less because you have less you have less customer growth. You don't have to spend ahead of that ahead of that hyper growth and get to profitability. I think that when our companies get later on is is a good thing. Um, there are some investors, and I think that this is this is actually somewhat accurate um, when you're thinking about an exit for venture back companies. Oftentimes, profitability can hurt your value. Um, so it's a little bit like sell the sizzle, not the steak, right? So if a public company is buying you as a growth story and you're profitable and you prove that you have 15% EBITDA margins as a business, that's maybe less interesting than, than showing a path where it could be 30 to 40%. Um, and again, it's uh, in, in this kind of format, it's hard to give the details, but it depends on the type of company and the, and the market and the situation. But, but sometimes it makes no sense to you know, actually get to profitability because that can impact your exit. Um, and you want to sell 
you know, going back, let's go back to the dating analogy. You want to sell like how great the marriage is going to be necessarily versus them seeing like in, in real time, you know, but again, you're not, you know, putting down the toilets either. <laughs> um, I think that's, I think that's, um, that's the game within the game and, and it's really company and industry specific. Yeah. Awesome. This was excellent. Uh, thank you so much. That's our show for this week. Thanks again for tuning in to the Ivy Podcast by Ivy, the social university. We are the grad school for life, and our mission is to spark world-changing collaborations by introducing you to the most inspiring people, ideas, and experiences in the world. Check us out at ivy.com for life-changing advice and gatherings, and the foremost thought leaders shaping our world today. For more information about the Ivy community, and to find out about events happening near you, visit ivy.com and email us via membership at ivy.com. Dream big and stay inspired.